Welcome back to the criminalization of addiction. Today's episode is titled For a Motive of Empathy, 20 Years in Federal Prison. It's Dr. Deanne back to discuss the importance of motive and mandatory minimum sentences in criminal drug cases. In the last episode, I had talked about the medical evidence associated with opioid addicts that makes it almost impossible for them to act as a competent dealer. And of course, that's a necessary condition for a drug-induced homicide charge, except my son was not a dealer, but he was still charged with a DIH and sentenced to 20 years in federal prison. The topics discussed today have been thoroughly researched and the references and tables for this episode can be found on my Facebook page titled The Criminalization of Addiction Under Files. Um, This podcast is based on another research paper of mine that is still a work in progress. The paper first focuses on issues surrounding motive and then on mandatory minimum sentencing. In legal jargon, by the way, motive is often referred to as the mens rea, M-E-N-S-R-E-A, two words, mens rea, which is Latin for guilty mind. And it is part of the due process that's guaranteed in the 5th and 14th Amendments to the Constitution. By ignoring due process in my son's case, it meant he was liable for the death of T.G., even though he had no intent to do her harm. In fact, it was just the opposite. Scott was motivated based on his feelings of obligation to K.T. and the knowledge of the pain that T.G. would go through if she did not obtain the fentanyl. At the end of this episode, I'll provide some recommendations for policy changes. Understanding the motive of why addicts share drugs first requires some understanding of what's entailed in one of their withdrawals. I learned a lot (laughs) listening, but um, and that first year was horrible. That I asked my son, in his own words, to describe one of his um, withdrawal experiences, and he decided to talk about his initial incarceration. "Quote: I hadn't slept in four, three or four days from smoking crack, but the day of my arrest, I shot up some fentanyl." took some clozapam and smoked some weed to help bring myself down. By the time I was arrested in front of my house on February 11th, 2019, I barely knew my name. I only remember bits and pieces of the hours long interrogation and the rejection of my request for a drug test. I was still sitting on a bench in a hallway, handcuffed and passed out when I was awakened by an officer. The next thing I remember, I was in a single man holding cell in Jennings, Missouri, eating spaghetti. I have no idea how I got there. I don't remember the ride or walk or whatever brought me to this place. I only remember the enormous, inescapable pain of early withdrawal. Shortly, I was moved to McCoupin County Jail in Illinois, where I had this huge guy for a cellmate. That only lasted one day, excuse me, before he asked for me to be moved 
because I stank so badly. The guards asked me to take off everything at booking, so I didn't even have my boxers for the first week. The withdrawal mixed with grinding fear then started in earnest. I couldn't eat, I stank, had horrible gas, sweats, and gut-wrenching pain. I cried out as it got worse. I was shaking, trembling, and could not sleep at night. I began to not be able to separate reality from my hallucinations, which were frightening in their intensity. One time I thought we inmates were watching a movie about a space academy where people learned to fly spacecrafts. I believed that other inmates who were taken from the common area were on the spaceship and could drop off weed on the side of the jail. I believed there were cases of Mountain Dew, my favorite, under my bed, and I was under the bed drinking the soda. I thought my mom had ordered Domino's pizza here, and we were eating pizza and drinking Mountain Dew. I thought the guards let me go up front to get my big black jacket, and I got real cigarettes out of the pockets and gave them to the people in the common area. But then I ran out of cigarettes and I had to go ask for some back. I must have looked insane, talking about something I didn't have, giving something that wasn't real to someone who was not even there. I remember banging on the doors and telling the guards I was not supposed to be here. I thought I had one job to do for the guards before they would let me leave. Hallucinations continued to plague me for almost a year. I thought I was working for a female FBI agent and helped bust a huge load of cocaine in a hidden compartment of the car. While we were searching, the cartel drove by and shot me 16 times. In real time, one of the guards opened my cell and I popped up as if I had a gun in my hand, old Western style. I had a shootout with the guard using my hands as guns. And unfortunately, many people in the common area at the jail I was in saw this and it's only been recently that enough people have left for the story to stop being told. The daily physical gut-wrenching pain was masked by total lunacy. The world was blurred. There was no clear line between truth and fantasy. I could not separate the physical pain from the world around me and I lived and I suffered. I would not wish this level of torment on my worst enemy, much less a friend or family member. And I thought to myself, how could trying to help someone avoid this be so wrong? I really believed it was an act of kindness. So why do addicts share drugs? They mainly share drugs to form a circle of like-minded friends to share drugs with in order to avoid withdrawal. My son, Scott, was sentenced to 20 years in federal prison, despite he, no proof that he was an addict. I mean, excuse me, no proof that he was a dealer and no previous felony arrest. No weapons or drugs found in his home or on his person. And yet he was still sentenced and Remember, federal prison doesn't allow for parole. And I witnessed a lot of his first year. I was able to see him in 2019 on a weekly basis. And it was some ugly, ugly stuff. I can't say as I can blame anybody for trying to avoid it.
guess with all opioid addicts, my son learned the severe pain that comes from withdrawal each time he could not obtain drugs in a timely manner. Even the withdrawals under medical watch that he had in the rehabilitation centers were unbearable. Many times he wished he could just die because he didn't have strength to fight his addiction any longer. In his words, quote, the funny thing about withdrawal is that addicts spend 100% of their time trying to avoid it. Always searching for drugs gets pretty intense and exhausting after a while. And sometimes you just want to get off the merry-go-round and say, I give up, take me, end quote. It is clear to me that advanced opioid addicts, including my son, have a vastly different view of the consequences of sharing drugs with fellow addicts than does society or drug dealers. Addicts are, addicts are generally motivated by two things. Probably the most motivating factor is to build goodwill among addicts in their circle so that um, when they run out of drugs, they have other people to go to to get drugs. And then the other is empathy stemming from each of their own excruciating withdrawal experiences. Scott's account of withdrawal alone explains to me why a motive of empathy or kindness is much closer to accurate than a assumed motive of homicide. Interestingly to me, as time has passed, some new research has emerged that indicate that there are actually reasons to believe that harsh drug laws have resulted in additional overdose deaths. Um, I've read studies by Jack Bowski, Kester, Wagner, and Banta Green, and all show that strict DIH laws have resulted in a decline in 911 calls for the overdose because people are afraid they will be charged with the DIH. To the extent that this holds, it actually increases the risk of overdose and is in direct conflict with one of the Justice Department's stated goals of reducing opioid deaths. Varner argues that rather than offering any sort of deterrence effect, the DIH statues are inappropriately holding drug dealers strictly liable for homicide. Strict liability means that the defendant is liable for committing an action regardless of what his or her intent or mental state was at the time of the action. Quote, even if the accused had no intent to do harm, they still receive sentences that far exceed any that are considered permissible under a traditional public welfare analysis and appear too severe to pass constitutional muster, end quote. After taking a deep dive into the development of strict liability laws, uh, Phillips found that knowledge of the accused criminal intent is an indispensable part of due process protection provided in homicide law, law. Quote, the ignoring of the accused mens rea is troubling because according to criminal law principle, the intent to harm is required to impose culpability. DIH laws are strict liability offenses requiring no intent toward the resulting death. This research asserts that criminal intent or mens rea is an indispensable part of due process protection in homicide law. Further, DIH laws, though not facially unconstitutional, 
are functionally anti-constitutional and inconsistent with the spirit, if not the letter of due process, end quote. Another researcher, Bukimia, puts it like this, quote, an accidental overdose death has occurred and the deployment of harsh criminal penalties are used as retribution for the surviving addict. This, these facts alone raise serious constitutional questions that are repeatedly ignored by the judicial system. For example, it ignores the intentions of the addict, which are never considered in sentencing, thereby denying a fully vetted due process for the defendant, end quote. The legal questions as they relate to the felony murder doctrine have been explored elsewhere in such diverse fields as history, philosophy, and criminal law. Regardless, the resulting consensus among the researchers is a near unanimous opinion that DIH laws and all its corollaries are number one, flawed law, and number two, damaging criminal justice policy. You can see Gilpin, Phillips, and Varner for more on that particular topic. And by the way, when we talk about DIH corollaries, that's talking mainly about strict liability and the fel felony murder doctrine. The fel felony murder doctrine in criminal law means that a person can be convicted of murder if they committed a felony that unintentionally resulted in death. The surge in the utilization of harsh punishments is particularly alarming to me because it has produced the opposite results as desired with rising addiction rates and rising overdose rates. The Justice Department's purpose for using harsh punishment has been shown not to work by academic research, health sciences reports, and successful recovery programs. The gap between the criminal justice approach and the science-based approach to addiction could not be wider. Narrowing this gap is a necessary step to criminal justice reform, but far from the most challenging. The most challenging and fundamental aspect needed for reform in this country is an alignment of the underlying purpose of incarceration. Why exactly are we locking up addicts? I don't know, but I do know that our country has tried the punishment revenge model with drugs for over 50 years, and it has not worked and it will not work. It is time to take a more scientific approach to punishment. Without a foundational understanding on both sides of the purpose of incarceration, the gap between the criminal justice approach and the science-based approach will most likely widen. My son is an addict who is not capable of being a dealer. His motive for sharing fentanyl was he did not want Tichi to suffer the debilitating pain of withdrawal, and he did not want to let his friend KT down. So does this mean, mean he deserves to be locked up for 20 years in federal prison with no parole? When he finally gets out, he will be almost 50 years old, and I will be almost 80 if I'm still alive. He will be completely dysfunctional in the outside world at that time. Who will hire him? What is he supposed to do? This is more like a life sentence because even afterward, the baggage will follow him all his life.
was curious to see whether the increase in incarceration rates was approximately equal to the increase in crime rates. So I gathered some information from the Bureau of Justice Statistics and created Table 1, which you can, uh, of course, see, but it is in the file posted on this podcast's website, The Criminalization of Addiction. This table offers a puzzling look. Um, surprisingly, beginning in the decade of the 1990s, total crimes and violent crimes both steadily declined all the way through 2019. At the same time, incarceration rates increased. If crimes are going down, why are conviction rates going up? Interestingly, in the 2019-2020 period, um, total crimes decreased by 7.5% that year. For the first time since the 1980s, violent crimes increased, and they increased by 30%. So that was kind of uh, surprising to see such a, a big increase in violent crimes just over a year period of time. The case to be made for the imposition of mandatory minimums is also significantly weakened by the multitude of unanswered questions from academics, scientists, and practitioners who have presented evidence raising serious questions about its efficacy. The one absolute that all parties seem to agree on, regardless of other views, is that fentanyl is the most deadly, cheapest drug to ever hit the U.S. black market in massive quantities. It only costs about 4 or $5 to kill yourself. Both federal and state governments continue to increase law enforcement and impose extreme sentences in DIH cases without evaluating the cost and benefits of their actions. Pitzer, a retired warden, gave his thoughts on sentencing, and this was all, all the way back in 2013. And he said, quote, the 1980s get tough on crime and war on drug agendas resulted in sub substantial changes to sentencing and correctional structures. From the abolition of parole to mandatory minimum sentences, these initiatives resulted in prison populations larger than anyone could ever have anticipated. I entered the Bureau of Prisons in 1973. By 1980, the federal prison system had 24,000 prisoners. Today, that's still 2013, federal prisoners totaled 156,428. Each year we lock up more individuals than we release. How long can this continue? How long can the American taxpayer foot the bill for increased incarceration? And more importantly, is it necessary? We have removed common sense from the federal judge's arsenal and determined that one prescription fits all, more and longer terms of incarceration. We spend more money as a country incarcerating an individual than educating our kids. I'm not saying that some people don't need to go to prison. I am saying that long prison sentences without the benefit of common sense and real investment in reentry programs creates a bigger problem than we had to start with." End quote. Today, by the way, the sum of people 
in state prisons plus federal prisons plus local jails totals more than 2.3 million. The warden makes several important points, including the forfeiture of common sense in sentencing and the cost burden to the American taxpayer. For every 100,000 people in the US, 710 of them are incarcerated, according to an estimate obtained by the Prison Policy Initiative. The Bureau of Justice Statistics estimates the annual cost of incarceration in the US at 81 billion per year. That's to house 2.3 million prisoners. This estimate does not include policing costs, court costs, or the costs paid by families to support incarcerated family members. And um, I, you can look at authors Levy, Lewis, and Wagner on these points uh, for a little more in-depth information. Lopez, a fourth author, shows that when the other costs are included, the estimated annual cost of incarceration is a whopping $182 billion per year. The Cato organization estimates that the total cost Americans have paid on prisons, jails, probation from 1971 to 2015 is over $1 trillion, and that represents a conservative estimate. In about 2020, a year, the year after my son was incarcerated, I wanted to see for myself the different sentences that were handed down in DIH cases. And I wanted to learn a little bit more about the background of each case. So I went online and began um, searching online media from national and local news outlets. I also looked at um, FBI releases and DEA commentaries. And I selected a sample of 50 DIH cases, 25 are state cases, and 25 are federal cases. Of the 50 cases reviewed for this study, no two cases were exactly the same. Some involved weapons, others involved multiple accusations of previous wrongdoing. And in one case, the accused injected the drug into an unwilling participant. Then there are plea deals with the prosecutor that can dramatically change the outcome of a case. If the accused has information of interest to the prosecutor, then the sentence can be significantly reduced or even eliminated. There's nothing clear, consistent, or repetitious about DIH laws that would have any hope of piercing the minds of those who have already accepted death as a possible outcome. Um, of the 25 state convictions reviewed, 20% resulted in a sentence of 20 years or more, while in the federal cases, 64% resulted in a sentence of 20 years or more. So that's quite a difference. On the other hand, for Leniency, the states were more lenient. 60% um, of the sample were sentenced to 10 years or less, but um, with the federal cases, only 20% of the sample was sentenced to 10 years or less. Three fairly clear messages came through to me. 
One, it's better to be arrested by the state authorities than by the federal DEA. Two, the distribution of sentences offers no consistent messaging to users, addicts, or dealers, or me. Three, if the accused has information to share with the prosecutor, the sentence can be reduced or possibly even eliminated. Another two reasons to add to the many others that mandatory minimums do not work is because number one, the exact same crime is never committed. And number two, the law is not applied evenly when plea deals exist. For example, there was one DIH case that, that was a state case and um, it was dismissed entirely through a plea deal while my son is in prison for 20 years and another where the sentence was probation, not prison. There were also two state sentences on the other extreme. One was for life and one was for 124 years, but I'm not sure what the difference is. There's also one federal case that was given a life sentence and another that was given 45 years. So um, they're all cautioning a lot of people, but I would say it's definitely better to get arrested by the state than the feds. As Gilpin puts it, after an eye-popping price tag of $1 trillion, most scholars consider this war on drugs to be an unmitigated failure analogous to prohibition-era policies. While the U.S. is home to 5% of the world's population, it holds 25% of the global prisoners. As for recommendations, not surprisingly, I recommend, number one, that strict liability laws be repealed. There should be no crime that results in the automatic denial of constitutional rights to due process. This change this would resolve the issues surrounding the motive of the accused. Number two, mandatory minimum sentences should be repealed. There are never two crimes, never two criminals that are exactly the same. Judges would then be able to do their job instead of being sidelined. Regardless of the goals for minimum sentencing, the policy has served to have an overall negative effect on our country's recovery from drug abuse. Instead, we have seen the overdose death rates and addiction rates increase. This combined with the rising costs of incarceration are evidence of the negative impact of the current and past approach. The continued pursuit of the failed punishment revenge strategy is equivalent to hoping a rock will produce water. It will not, not now, not ever. My son was used in as an example of the inhumane results of strict liability laws and mandatory minimum sentencing. He was a 29 year old addict who had never been violent, never owned a weapon, and never had any previous interactions with the police. He's trying to help out a friend and now is in prison for 20 years. Goodbye until next week. We'll talk about prosecutorial misconduct. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great week. Bye-bye.